I was told by a better preacher than I that if you cannot be great, be brief. And so today, guys, don't go far. Um, we may be out of here in time for brunch. Forget about lunch. Um, I had a great outline for today, or what I thought was a great outline, and this is not one of those stories about like I fell asleep and had a dream and God was like, that's not the word, and then I come up here with like my post-it note and I'm like, this is the word that God has given me. And by the way, I think those guys always have that sermon like in their back pocket. Um, it just sounds so much better, right? Like this thing came to me in a dream last night, I had no time, here's my sticky note sermon, and they just knock it out of the park. Um, no, I, I had this sermon prepared and it was what I would consider one of, the, one of these grand slam sermons that like hits all the right notes on the lectionary text, like it includes all of them, it connected all the dots. Um, it was about being a resurrection people and what that looks like, uh, leaning into the gospel text about this is what it looks like for you to be a resurrected person. Um, we have this odd text in 1 Corinthians about What's the state of our resurrected bodies? Um, this has been an argument that's been going on for a long time. And Paul mentions that it's like a seed that gets put into the ground and it has to die before it can sprout and give new life. And then the Old Testament text for today was out of Genesis 45 talking about Joseph and how his family has now found him in Egypt. And there is this whole connecting piece about Joseph being the seed that was planted in the ground when he was thrown into the pit and he made a way for his family and it was really great. Um, I shared it with someone that I trust and they told me it was impossibly boring. I, I think the words they used was actually uninteresting. Um, and so that was like Friday night, um, which is not the feedback you want heading into the weekend. But um, I've been given a sort of particular task today, and I think sermons generally do one of a few things. There is a way that we just, we preach sermons that are meant to just exegete the text, right? Just to explain what's going on here and communicate how in some way this is good news for our community and how we're called to carry this good news out to other people. There are sermons that we preach that are intended to give some sort of direction and some sort of vision into the future, some sort of pathway forward. And then I think there are some sermons that are simply intended to be, in Jeremiah's words, is there a balm in Gilead? And so my hope, my, my prayer, what I'm trusting in today is that something of what's communicated here will feel like a balm for your soul. If you were here last week, you heard the announcement that pastors Mark and Danielle, uh, they're wrapping up their season as interim pastors here at Sanctuary. If you weren't here last week, can surprise. Um, but, you know, as grateful as we are to them and as excited as we are for whatever this next season of ministry looks like for them, these kinds of moments can create a sort of uncertainty. They can create questions for us, maybe a bit of fear about the next chapter of our common life and practice together. And, you know, Sanctuary has been a very storied community. We are people who are oriented to the story of God's work in the world as it's outlined in Scripture. We've been people who have appealed to the work of God throughout the history of the church 
And we also have been finding ourselves and locating ourselves in our own stories in the work that God seems to be doing in a place like Tulsa. And so today, I just want to share a couple stories with you and maybe share about a hopeful future for us as a community. First, um, I want us to go back to the text. I want us to hear the words from Paul's letter to the Philippians. We find this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. This text reflects a kind of turbulence, the turbulence of love. And when love comes into the world in Jesus Christ, it comes in a particular way. It comes carrying a particular posture. And that way, that posture of Christ, that mind that Paul says we ought to share, it was met with a kind of resistance because life is messy and life is hard and life is complicated and there's great wounding in the world and we often act out and respond from that place of wounding. The Bible outlines using the language of sin, the ways that we act, our behaviors and ways of relating to one another that fly under that banner of hurt and pain. And Paul is suggesting that when love comes into the world, when it moves into your neighborhood by the way of Jesus Christ, there is a powerful turbulence that results in an emptying and a giving over of oneself. And this is not a romantic, sweeping up kind of love. Like Jesus comes giving of himself with a smile on his face. But this kind of giving and emptying of himself was met ultimately with death. Even death on a cross. So this narrative has been the source of a lot of turbulence and a lot of confusion of the church since its inception. How do we deal with this kind of love? How do we accept it? How do we live it out? How do we make it known, this self-emptying, self-sacrificing kind of love? You know, sometimes I think we, we romanticize eras like the early church, and we think, you know, if we can just get back to these few critical practices, if we can just recapture this sort of purity that the disciples carry, that, you know, maybe that will be the thing that kind of fixes all the things 
You know what I'm saying? But most of our New Testament exists because of the same kind of conflict and turbulence and questions that you and I often deal with. Many of the letters, including the Philippians text that we just read, uh, they were written on the occasion of some challenge or experience of chaos that needed to be addressed. And this is important because we tend to always see other contexts, other time periods, maybe other church communities with some of these sorts of rose-colored glasses. And they cause resentment for our own time and our own place and our own experience. So it's helpful for have, to have this kind of framework for chaos, particularly when chaos comes knocking at your own front door, as it often always does. So we know how to respond in a way that's faithful, in a way that's hopeful. So how do we begin to work this way of love that we find in Christ? How do we work it into our own lives and into our own expression? One thing that I think we have to do is analyze and reflect on some of our own experiences and how storied our life together has been. Even now I look out and I think about some of the shared experiences that have existed among the people in this room. Some of you were around in the early 2000s before sanctuary was sanctuary. We were people's church back then. And our catchphrase was something like people's church, detox for the soul. Uh, the cure for the spiritual hangover, right? Um, any people's church people still in the room? Yeah. Um, some of you remember the days when we met at Regent Prep and Eugene Gregory was leading worship for us. And we had this drummer. His name was Junior. And Junior sat on the drum throne, but also the throne of my heart. I thought Junior could walk on water, man. This guy was so good. It was those days when we first started teasing out this rhythm of weekly communion. And do you remember those little cups that we had that we called them McUnions? Um, because they were the little cups and they had the juice in them, but then they had this little film on top and you peeled it back and the wafer was in there. You slipped it out. Um, McUnions. Some of you remember these endless stages of being portable, setting up and tearing down week after week at Regent and at Channel 47. Some of you remember the first time that we participated in Lent as a community and in one fell swoop we lost like 40% of our people. Uh, they just stayed away by the thousands, right? Um, some of you remember those first weeks and months of merging sanctuary and life connection and the endless arguments over whose coffee beans are we going to use and like whose flavored syrups and um, how beautiful that whole transition has been for us as two communities becoming one body of Christ. And Life Connection folks have a story and a history of all their own that we all bring to this moment. Some of you remember how we used to do Easter at Christ Chapel and how one year while we were all out of the building, we very sneakily tore down the whole stage and so when you all came flooding back into the building two weeks later, there was no stage anymore. And all of a sudden, the table was the most prominent thing in the room. Some of you joined us at various steps along the way. And some of you are here this morning for the very first time. But most of us have some real, tangible moment 
that we fell in love with this community. We have some experience, some person that led us to this place. And I think that most of us would agree that in the words of Rowan Williams, we have been a community that has experienced graced moments of risk and solidarity. Risk and solidarity. That there are times we have taken risks together, moments of chaos and uncertainty, but the most important thing is that we've braved it together. One reason I fell in love with Sanctuary is because of its honesty about the debts that we owe to one another, the debts that we owe to people known to us and unknown to us, that the faith we have received is not of our own making, but it's one that we have inherited. I remember as a kid, uh, maybe 13 or 14 years old, and I was feeling this sort of tug into ministry. Uh, If I'm being honest, a lot of it felt like the family business. I'm a fourth-generation pastor's kid. I've grown up in church. I've really only known church life. And as I'm getting older, I'm feeling like this might be something that's for me. And that wasn't supposed to be funny. (laughs) But it is. I get it. Um, But even as like a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, I had this deep sense of anxiety over whether or not I would be any good at this because I didn't think I could keep coming up with something new. And this was the value system, right? This is the economy that we worked in. If DC Talk taught me anything, it's that God is doing a new thing. (laughs) And could I keep giving myself to something new week after week after week? What if, in this economy, I couldn't be the guy with all the new ideas? And I can't tell you how relieved I was, the weight off of my shoulders when I somehow stumbled into a Christian spirituality that was not dependent on me. A spirituality that I could just show up to. And some days I feel it and some days I don't. But if I just show up to it and I participate in it, it means I am part of this body of Christ, this inherited, received faith. And I also used to be one of these classic offenders, one of these people who threw out the, you know, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. You know, me and Jesus, we kind of got this whole thing figured out. Um, It's like I was so enlightened, right? Like, you know, this isn't about religion, it's all about relationship. Um, And nowadays I would say, I'm not just spiritual, I am religious. I'm not just spiritual. I have to be religious. I adhere to the practices and the traditions of the Christian religion. Because I can't leave it to myself to be formed into the likeness of Christ. I'm religious because there are disciplines that belong to the received wisdom of the Christian faith. I have been baptized this introductory right into the body of believers. I pray both in my own words and in words that were written by other people. I come and I receive the Eucharist. I trust that Jesus Christ really is present in the body and in the blood and that this is how the world is healed. Being formed into the Christ-likeness means participating in the body of Christ. 
So being spiritual, it simply isn't enough. We need one another to figure this thing out. But I think you would agree that sanctuary has offered the kind of space needed to work these things out. To ask questions, to be open and honest about our wounds. If you remember the story, I'm sure you do, the story of Doubting Thomas. And Jesus appears to him and the disciples. And Jesus comes and he shows Thomas his hands and his feet and his side. And even though Christ is resurrected, he still comes bearing his wounds. He still shows Thomas his hands that have been pierced, his feet that have been pierced, his side that's still open. And what if Jesus appeared without his wounds? Because I think this is how we most often imagine Jesus, right? There's nothing broken. There's nothing missing. There's nothing lacking. But still, here he is. This is how he chooses to make himself known to us. And it's in bearing his wounds to someone like Thomas that makes way for Thomas's faith. It's an on-ramp for Thomas to actually live into and believe in this love of Jesus. What if one of the reasons that Jesus retains his scars after the resurrection is because he respects our own wounds too much to simply forget them? He's not interested in making us just forget about our wounds or fixing our problems, but wiping away every tear from our eyes. It's a much different posture. It's as if Jesus is saying that brokenness and vulnerability that these things are actually distinctive markers of Christian community. Being willing to show each other our hands and our sides, to be honest about our wounds, the things that have pained us, the times when we have stepped into Christian community and we've ended up getting burned on the back end. What if it's only ever possible to experience this balm of Gilead? when we're vulnerable, when we're open, when we're honest about our hurts and our pains. Historically, sanctuary has been a place of healing and safety. And this is due to the fact that we refuse to try and own or manage one another. We're very open-handed with one another. We've been a people who are deeply rooted in an identity of belovedness and a sense of belonging to one another. This means that we're less about managing and directing and more about being a place of radical welcome because we believe in the transformative power in the life of Jesus. Henry de Lubick, a a Jesuit priest, he once said that what is most human is our involvement with one another. And God is most God when we are most human, living into our intended purpose. This means it's hard, dare I say impossible, to be Christian apart from the church. We simply can't do it alone. And this means that God and the world are never in a relationship of competition, but that Christ through the incarnation tells us humanity matters, the created world matters, and how we find our common life together matters. 
The way this bears out in community is by insisting that our life together is not about truth propositions. It's not about a big mission statement painted on a wall. It's not an agreed-upon set of doctrinal beliefs. But what is most true and what means the most in our collective gatherings is about real, honest, hard, messy, chaotic lives and how we find our common life together. I can't tell you how many stories exist from sanctuary parishioners who at one point were not sure they could ever go back to a church anymore. But Sunday comes, as it always does, and they wake up, they get out of bed, they get dressed, maybe they're dragging kids out of bed, trying to wrangle clothes onto them, strapping them into a car seat, and they drive somewhere. And many of you have been the people in these stories, and you drive somewhere, and somewhere leads you to sanctuary. So you get in the building, you get your kids checked in, and some of you think, my kids are checked in, which means I don't have to be responsible for my kids right now. (laughs) So you wander out to the gathering space, and you grab a cup of coffee, and you sit down. And I want to tell you that's okay. If that's as far into the building as you could make it, if that's all the faith you could muster on a Sunday morning, welcome. At least you did the thing. And some of you, forget about even getting into the building. I know stories of people sitting in this room right now who got in their cars after getting out of bed and getting dressed and doing the whole thing, and they drove somewhere, and all they could do was get to the parking lot. And they sat there watching the service on the live stream. Now, we could get hung up on, do I think it would be wonderful if they could make it into the service to participate in this common expression of worship, to join us at the table? Of course. And we could get all hung up on those things. But here's the thing that I love. When they needed to go somewhere, they went to sanctuary. When they couldn't get in the building... They just went to Sanctuary's parking lot. Why? Because we've been a community of radical welcome. We've been a people who have looked at each other and said, you can't believe in the thing today? That's okay. You're here. You did it. I will believe for you. When you have no faith, borrow some of mine. Because there are days when we will all walk into this building and we will not have as much faith as we need to get through, forget about the week, the morning. You did the thing. It's okay. Keep showing up. Even if it's just in the parking lot. Because the wounds that you're licking right now, the wounds you're not Sure, if you can give to other people, they can be healed if you just keep showing up. I think one of the gifts that we're offered, especially in seasons of transition and uncertainty, is the gift of being taken back to the center 
of our own belief, to reflect on who we are, why we do what we do. And we're offered a question, have we really understood anything? And that question invites us into what Rowan Williams calls a fruitful confusion. I think it's one of my favorite phrases right now, a fruitful confusion. And he says that a fruitful confusion is realizing our commitment is genuine and our understanding is still growing. A fruitful confusion. And maybe that's the most truthful thing to be said about sanctuary, that this is our equilibrium. Our baseline at sanctuary is a fruitful confusion. But here's what we know. Our commitment is genuine and our understanding is growing. As I try to land this ship today, I want to give us a few thoughts about how we ought to move into the future. And the first is this, sanctuary, let us resist anger. I'll forever be indebted to a dear friend of mine who died this week. Her name was Amy. And Amy was my babysitter when I was a kid, my sister and I. And then as we got older, she became more like the older sister than the babysitter. And she is one of these people who's just always been a part of our lives and we thought was always going to be a part of our lives. And one day I was in middle school and my parents were in the middle of a divorce. And our church was going through a split and it was the church that my my family had founded and the divorce and the church split were all tangled up in one another. And it was a really dark season of our lives. And Amy came to our house in her red Jeep Wrangler and picked up my sister and I. And we get in the car, get in the Jeep. Oh, she would have hated that moment. We get in the Jeep, which it had to be a stick shift. Like in her mind, if it was an automatic and it was a Jeep, like it's not a Jeep. It's like you're driving an SUV. Uh, So it was a stick shift, red Jeep Wrangler. And we get in the car and she just looks at us and says, if you need to yell at God today, that's okay. If you need to be angry with God, that's okay. If you, I hesitate saying this, little ears in the room. She's like, if you need to cuss at God today, that's okay. And you know what? If he decides that he's going to strike you down with lightning in this moment, he's going to have to take me with you. Amy was the first person to give me permission to be angry with God. Being angry is okay. Anger is a valid, respectable emotion, but it's what we do with our anger that's important. If we use our anger as a weapon to wield against one another, it's not okay. We need to go back and do some more processing of our own emotions and experience if that's the case. Anger is okay, but let's not use it against one another. I think one of the temptations in seasons of transition like the one that we are in is that we find a person or we find an event to attach our anger to, to validate our separation. That rather than pressing into some of these more chaotic moments and seasons of our lives, we would rather find the person or find the situation or find the event to be angry at it, to affirm our own detachment. And we'll never find faithful community that way. Another story from Sanctuary that I love about someone sitting 
or maybe not sitting in this room, was a person who had been coming to Sanctuary for a while, and she came to us and said she felt like we needed to be championing some more Republican talking points. Um, And this happens from time to time. It's okay. We all have our own convictions and beliefs about what should be communicated in these settings. Um, And we let her process that. But she stuck around, and she kept listening. She started meeting other people at Sanctuary, kept being engaged with other parishioners. And after a while, she came back to us, and she said, you know, it's not so much that my beliefs have changed or that my convictions have changed. I still believe in all of these things that I think we need to be talking about. It's just that I'm not angry anymore. And what a gift to have possession of this kind of community, to belong to these kinds of people, that it's okay that we have differences of opinion. It's okay that we all have different convictions and we all have opinions about how this should all bear out in the world. But if we can listen to one another and give our experiences to one another, maybe we just won't be angry anymore. So sanctuary, let's not be angry And second, let's rest a little. Rowan Williams says that people have a painful hunger to be taught to sit still. The church has often been too noisy to give the world an invitation to be still, as if God depends on our activity to get the right answer before God can relax. Sanctuary, God calls us to be the body of Christ. And being the body of Christ is not about defending social principles, but about living in the social fact of God's divine love. It's not about defending social principles. And we can get so caught up in our own doing that we can't settle into our being. Maybe a cheesy way of saying this is that we think we need to be human doings instead of human beings. But oftentimes we're afraid to rest because resting requires trust. Did you know that at one point in human history, people slept in shifts? That doesn't really have anything to do with anything. Uh, (laughs) When people lived together, some of them would sleep and some would stay awake. And then they would switch. And it worked. It filled an actual purpose of protection keeping watch over one another. But being the people who rest and trusting in the people who are awake to keep you safe, to watch out for you, to watch over you, requires a lot of trust. Rest requires that we sit still a while. It resists the need to be productive, sitting still with our own thoughts and our feelings and emotions. And it's by being still and by resting that healing work can actually happen. But we fear being still. We fear rest. We fear relinquishing control. We fear entrusting our well-being with others. And so maybe the word that we need, maybe the word that the world needs is simply, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to trust God. Do not be afraid to let go of control. Do not be afraid to be vulnerable in the midst of community. If God can rest, so can you. And finally, let's not be angry. 
Let's rest a little. And let's remember to love. Jesus' words in our gospel reading today state, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Turn the other cheek. Don't withhold your shirt. Give to everyone. Do good. Lend. Expect nothing. Be merciful. Do not judge. Do not condemn. Forgive and be forgiven. One of the temptations, I think, of any Christian community is that we can get so caught up in our common practice and our gathering and our experience on a Sunday morning that we forget it's intended to take us somewhere. We forget that our experience here as a gathered community really calls us back out into the world. We forget about the people and the places to whom and to where our practices are meant to lead us. And I love these words from Alexander Schmemann. Schmemann? Schmemann? Yeah. He says in his book, For the Life of the World, he's talking about the sacrament of the Eucharist. And he says this, The Eucharist is the sacrament of cosmic remembrance. It is indeed a restoration of love as the very life of the world. The church, if it is to be the church, must be the revelation of that divine love which God poured into our hearts. Without this love, nothing is valid in the church because nothing is possible. The content of Christ's Eucharist is love, and only through love can we enter into it and be made its partakers. Of this love, we are not capable. This love, we have lost. This love Christ has given us, and the gift is the church. The church constitutes itself through love and on love, and in this world it is to witness to love, to represent it, represent it, to make love present. Love alone creates and transforms. It is therefore the very principle of the sacrament. At sanctuary, we come to this table to receive the gift of love. A self-emptying, broken open love, like Paul says in Philippians. It's a love that we are not capable, a love that we have lost. But it's a love that is made available to us. It's made available to us as we receive with open hands the body of Christ, the bread of heaven broken for you, and the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation shed for you. And if we can resist anger, if we can learn to rest and remember to love, sanctuary will continue to be a place of respite, a place marked by grace and peace. Sanctuary, do not be afraid. Let us continue to be a people of risk and solidarity. Amen.